In just a moment, I'll be reading a scripture from Second Chronicles, chapter 36, beginning in verse 11. You may want your Bibles open there, even though it will be on the screen. Today is the last in the sermon series, What the Bible is All About, Where Am I in God's Big Story? It's been an interesting journey. I've appreciated your input, your questions, your feedback, your encouragement, and it's been a, it's been a wonderful experience for me personally, the discipline of preaching the central story of the Bible from Genesis through this testament of Scripture, and we will, in a few months, probably next fall, Uh, do the same series with the New Testament and give ourselves a break from this particular theme. But I want to encourage you, uh, if you missed one of the sermons or if you want to go back and revisit a particular theme, remember that online the sermons are available in manuscript form and also on audio uh, file. So you may uh, at any time, uh, day or night, uh, have access to that. And, And I encourage that from the standpoint of our discipleship and our growth And it seems to help all of us if we can just figure out how all these stories fit into a logical place or some kind of sequence. It helps us grow as Christians when we can see God's big picture. And so uh, it's been a blessing, and I look forward to this morning's sharing and and the time that we have together as we process everything that we have uh, learned. Now, before I read the scripture, I'd like for us to bow for prayer. We've had some wonderful worship this morning through music and through prayer, and through scripture, and uh, we want to pause and just invite the Holy Spirit to be upon us, and invite the Holy Spirit to speak particularly to us, and maybe there's something we want to say to God, and we need the time and space and the silence to do our own communication. So let's bow together. Sovereign Lord of all the nations, we come to you this morning with our prayers for peace in the world, for somehow a solution to the crises in Syria and in Iraq and in the relationships between the Palestinians and the Israelis in the Holy Land as we know it. We pray for peace within our own land, for a reduction of tensions in Ferguson and for justice and peace to equally prevail in the tensions between races and uh, groups of people. And we pray that you will help us to have the open hearts to be instruments of reconciliation in all of our personal relationships, that we might have understanding and that we might bear witness to a living, loving, forgiving Christ. We pray for those in our church family who are ill. We pray for those who are struggling and grieving. We pray for those who are facing life decisions. We pray for those who are gathered here because we're hungry spiritually. We need a fresh word from you. We need your continued guidance. We need your forgiveness of sins and grace. And Father, we pray today that your Holy Spirit might work mightily First of all, comforting and guiding us and teaching us your truth. Your Holy Spirit would also be convicting of 
sin and righteousness and judgment, as Scripture says, as Jesus said. Your Holy Spirit might be shining light in dark places. Your Holy Spirit might be drawing people to Jesus, that your Holy Spirit might in every way blanket this place, remove every distraction, work and speak through me and through each of us as we encounter your word. And we pray this prayer in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, before I read 2 Chronicles 36, I want to remind you that this is one of the few nuggets of Scripture that sort of just captures the history of Israel in one passage of Scripture. Uh, Here we will hear described the fall of, of Jerusalem, of the people of God, the southern kingdom Judah, as I talked about last week. Uh, we will talk, uh, it will talk about them being led away into Babylonian captivity. And then it will talk about the turning that happened after 70 years. Note carefully toward the end of the passage, there's a pivot. There's a turn toward joy and restoration. So I want you to be alert to all of that and be listening prayerfully to God's Word. And I invite you to stand if you're able as God's Word comes among us and as I read this aloud. Second Chronicles 36, 11. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he began to reign. He reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. He did not humble himself before the prophet Jeremiah, who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear by God. He stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord, the God of Israel. All the leading priests and the people also were exceedingly unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations, and they polluted the house of the Lord that he had consecrated in Jerusalem. The Lord, the God of their ancestors, sent persistently to them by his messengers, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at the prophets until the wrath of the Lord against his people became so great that there was no remedy. Therefore, he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, who killed their youths with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on the young men or the young women, the aged or the feeble. He gave them all into his hand all the vessels of the house of God, large and small, and the treasures of the house of God, and the treasures of the king and of his officials, all these he brought to Babylon. They burned the house of God. They broke down the wall of Jerusalem, burned all its palaces with fire, and destroyed all its precious vessels. He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons, until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had made up for its Sabbaths. All the days it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. In the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, in fulfillment of the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of King Cyrus of Persia so that he sent a herald throughout his, all his kingdom and also declared a written edict. 
Thus says King Cyrus of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. God's word. May he bless it to our understanding. Be seated, please. Who here this morning has not experienced exile of some kind or other? Being shut out, being carried off, having things happen to us that we didn't get to vote on, that we had no say-so over. But that sense of being isolated and removed from your very familiar surroundings or, or just being isolated and cut off. In childhood, it starts when you realize that you did not get invited to the slumber party. And then you grow up a little older and you realize you didn't make the team that you tried out for. And you get a little older and someone betrays you in a love relationship. And you feel cut off and out to pasture. Sometime in your life, you maybe experience what it feels like to be fired, to be terminated from a job to live without the sense of justice that, you're, that you ever had a say-so in what happened to you. Perhaps you've lived with sexual abuse or physical abuse, and that created for you a, a lonely sense of isolation and exile. Perhaps you're at a stage in your life where because of aging or disease, you're feeling cut off from others and... Uh, some decisions are being made for you that you don't get to participate in. There are all kinds of exile that we feel from time to time. Exile is that feeling where all of the familiar is being ripped away from our lives. And when everything familiar has been taken away from us, we begin to lose our sense of identity. Because our identity is always wrapped up in how we relate to others and our habits and our routines and our places of being and all of our sense of belonging and this is the world well-ordered that I live in. The people of God experienced it as we described in the scripture that I just read and, and we go through it too. And they're telling us that we live in a post-modern time. And I don't know all that that means. But to live in a postmodern time is to live in a time where nothing seems to be nailed down anymore. Everything seems to be up for grabs. Everything that used to seem so certain has sort of just become loosened with the storms of culture and the storms of life. And we all experience that disorientation that is a kind of exile. Well, the exile of the people of God, as I described to you and read to you the scripture a moment ago, happened around 587, 586 B.C. And it was when that southern kingdom, Judah, the Israelites uh, technically called Israel the northern kingdom and, and uh, Judah the southern kingdom, and I'll use that phrase interchangeably. But the, but the Israelites, the people of God, were captured by the Babylonians and taken into captivity. And I hope you can see that map. Because I want you to see that, uh, again, to orient you, over to the left is a blue body of water, which is the Mediterranean Sea. And that strip of land right against the Mediterranean Sea is the Holy Land or Canaan or Israel. 
Israel, Judah. And that red line is a line of how the people of God were deported by the, by the invading troops of Babylonians and were taken 500 miles. The ones who didn't die in battle were forced to march 500 miles up through what would now be Syria and over into what was then Babylonia, which is modern-day Iraq. And there they were forced to live for approximately 70 years of cruel and bitter captivity. That's, those are the ones who survived the military invasion that came in three waves into Judah. 500 miles. And after they'd lived there in that Babylonia or modern-day Iraq, then there was a time after 70 years when Babylonia itself was overtaken by the Persians to the east, modern-day Iran, and the new king, Cyrus, decided to let them return to their homeland. But 70 years. Now, folks, what it just took me a few paragraphs to describe for you, and what's only taken a few sermons to describe in macro history, were centuries and centuries, decades and decades, years and years of a bitter and cruel slide of the nation Israel. We can talk about it so glibly and so quickly, but it was a bitter and cruel, long and terrible captivity. And so I want us to think, as we sort of summarize uh, this exile, and the subsequent return, I want us to think about some lessons that the, that the Israelites learned and that maybe we can learn about this whole series, what the Bible is about, and particularly about this, this bitter exile, the consequences of their disobedience. So here's the first lesson I want us to think about. We learn in exile that broken times can be growing times. We don't like to admit that. But times of exile, times of, uh, of change, times of, of things being taken away from us, of life having abrupt changes, we don't like to admit it, but times of exile can, in the pain of it all, be growing and learning times. Sooner or later, we all come up against something bigger than us. Sooner or later, we all come up against something that we cannot fix with our own human resources. We can't do this by ourselves. And we spend a lot of our lives dreading that. We spend a lot of our lives trying to avoid that kind of experience. But the truth is that sooner or later it comes. And when it comes, one of the things we find out is that we can become more creative than we thought in finding a way to grow through that experience. We actually find resources we didn't know we had because God is with us in those broken times to make those broken times a growing time, a learning time. Let me give you a couple of examples. As the people of God were deported 500 miles away into captivity. Some of them were left behind. The stragglers were left behind. Their temple had been destroyed by the Babylonians. They didn't have any place to worship anymore. So guess what they did? They found out that God's foot was not nailed down to the temple. 
they found out that God was everywhere. So they started building little synagogues all over Palestine, little gathering houses, so that by the time of Jesus, there were synagogues spread everywhere. You see, necessity became the mother of invention. They had to get creative and find a way to worship because the central temple wasn't there anymore. So they created synagogues, and they found regional places to worship in villages so they didn't have to all trek to a place where there used to be a temple. Let me give you another example. I don't know if you realize it or not, but it was actually during the time of Babylonian captivity, those 70 years, that much of the Hebrew Scripture, the First Testament that we call the Old Testament, came together and was collected. The people of God didn't have a central place to worship. They didn't have the priests to lead them, so they had to figure out what God was saying to them. They started collecting psalms and putting them together. They started collecting history through the books of Moses and through some of the the judges, and they started recording their history, compiling their history, and in those 70 years, much of the First Testament of Scripture came together. Creatively, even in their brokenness, they found a way to grow. Now, what I want to ask you this morning is, in your times of brokenness and pain, in your time of enforced exile, when you've been carried to a place you don't want to be in life, have you taken the time to ask God to make this a growing time and a learning time? Or have you just moaned and groaned about it? Walter Brueggemann says that in most of our life experiences, there are three phases, orientation, disorientation, and reorientation. In the case of Israel, orientation at the height of David's kingdom, when everything was running smoothly, when David was king, the kingdom was united, the people of God were worshiping, and things were, were moving along, that was, they were oriented, life was good. And then disorientation. The kingdom began to crumble. They were eventually led into captivity. Confusion everywhere. But in the midst of that Babylonian captivity, reorientation. Let's find a way to cope. Let's look to God and see what God is teaching us. Let's find a way to grow through this experience and ask God how this brokenness can be used for good purposes. So here's the deal. Most of us get the orientation. We all vote to stay there, right? We all understand disorientation, times of exile. But how are you doing with the reorientation? What kind of grade would you give yourself in the reorientation? I love this quote by Mike Iaconelli. Faith, he says, is not the way around pain. It is the way through pain. Faith does not get rid of the opposition. It invites it over for dinner. Faith does not get rid of the opposition. It invites it over for dinner. And says, could we get acquainted? And could we learn? And could we grow from knowing one another. So, exile can teach us 
that broken times can be growing times. But here's the second thing. Exile can also teach us how to thrive as a minority. How to thrive as a minority. Now, the people of God, when they were taken away from Israel, they were taken away from familiar land, familiar friends, familiar ways of worship, familiar government structure, familiar language. They were taken away from all of their privileges. They were in Babylon, in the minority. They were the odd people. They were the ones that everybody stared at. But they learned to thrive as a minority. That's what the book of Daniel is all about in the Old Testament. In Babylonian captivity, Daniel and his friends would not bow down to a false god. And they learned to thrive as a minority. Now I have to tell you, I get a little worried about American Christians, all of us, because we are so spoiled, we somehow think that we're entitled, because we're Christians, to all the privileges of our nation. We think that every vote has to go our way, that everything culturally has to go our way, that everything uh, uh, in, in the populace has to go our way. And in reality, think about this. We have never been at our best as a people when we have been the majority. We get sloppy and careless when we're the majority. We have always done best as the people of God when we're on the margins, when we're the minority, when we're on the edges. We have always done better as the people of God. Just look at the book of Acts. No privileges, no special dispensations from government that, yes, you have a place in the public conversation. They just bore witness to Jesus Christ and they lived the gospel. We always do better from the margins. Historian Herbert Tarr has written something very interesting about the Judeans, the southern kingdom, the Israelites. He said that that is the only people group in antiquity who were ever led away, deported, and led into captivity, carried into exile. They're the only people group of antiquity that ever maintained their faith, and their identity. He said all the other people groups of of antiquity, when they were carried off into another country, they simply got absorbed and swallowed up by the prevailing culture. But he said the Israelites in captivity, at least some of them, kept their witness, maintained their identity, and kept their faith in God. They learned how to thrive as a minority, as the people of God, when everything around them was not in their favor. That's, I think, how we learn to live the Christ life in our particular culture and time. But here's the third lesson we learn from exile. We've learned that broken times can be growing times. We've learned that We can thrive as a minority, but the third lesson is that God is Lord of history. 
Now, I want you to think of a big fish tank or aquarium or maybe fish in the depths of the ocean. Remember those cartoons and, and pictures you've seen on National Geographic and other places where a little fish is swimming along and then a bigger fish eats him? And then a bigger fish still comes along and eats that one? And then an even bigger fish comes along and eats that one? You get the point, right? I want you to do some macro history with me for just a moment to illustrate this point that God is Lord of all of history. In 722 and 721 B.C., the northern kingdom of Israel was swallowed up and led into captivity by Assyria. And then a bigger fish called Babylon came along and swallowed up Assyria. And then Babylon conquered the southern kingdom. And then a still bigger fish came along called Persia and swallowed up Babylon and after 70 years said to the Israelites, you can go back to your homeland. And do you know what Isaiah calls King Cyrus, this heathen king of Persia or modern-day Iran? You know what Isaiah calls Cyrus in Isaiah 45.1? He calls him Messiah. Not the Messiah, capital M. I know some of you had a heart attack right there. Not the Messiah, capital M, but lowercase m, Messiah, which means in Hebrew, the anointed one. Isaiah said, I see macro history spread out on a canvas before me, and I see God as the Lord of history. The God who would allow us to go into captivity is the God who put it in Cyrus's heart to let us come back to our homeland. God anointed Cyrus the king, that pagan king, and God used him because history is always his story. It's God's story. God's in charge. And I want you to maybe learn something that you might not be aware of. This passage of Scripture that I read at the beginning of the sermon, in the Hebrew Bible... This is the last book of the Bible. So if a Jew is reading Scripture today, that Scripture that I just read would be at the end of their Bibles. This is the final word. Captivity, and then that glorious turning in verses 19, 20 and 21 and 22 and following, all the way into verse 23, where Cyrus is anointed by God to bring the people back. It ends with good news, sort of like James told the children. It ends with good news because God is Lord of the nations and He's used Cyrus to bring the people back. And so really, the message is the old promises still hold. God's promises still work. And if you've missed all the other sermons in this series, let me just recap. Here it is. God wins. Now you don't have to take time and listen to all those other sermons. God wins. In fact, if you don't have time to read the Bible through this afternoon from Genesis to Revelation, let me give you cliff notes. God wins. What the Bible is all about, God wins. He's the Lord of history. He's the God of the resurrection. He is superintending human affairs. And exile may come for the night, but joyous return comes in the morning. 
Stanley Hauerwas is a theologian who says he does not agree with the statement, everything changed on 9-11. In reference to 9-11-01, the terrorist attacks. He said, I don't agree with that. He said, everything did not change on 9-11. He said, everything changed A.D. 33, when Jesus died on the cross and was raised from the dead. He said, now, it's important that you see 9-11 through the lens of A.D. 33. In fact, it's important that we see all of history through the lens of what God has done in Jesus Christ. That God is the Lord of history. Terrorists may attack, but God is the Lord of history. ISIS may behead innocent victims, but God is the Lord of history. Politicians may disappoint us or deceive us, but God is the Lord of history. You may be living through a dark time today when you feel like you're living with great injustice to your life, but God is the Lord of history. You may be at a place this morning where you simply don't know what to do and which way to turn, but God is the Lord of history. And you may be saying this morning, I'm beginning to wonder if my exile will ever end. But I'm here to tell you that it will end because God is the Lord of history. Let's pray together.